Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and the words of that great singer from my childhood days, Barry Manilow, looks like we made it. The end of 2020 is actually in sight. And so today we're going to be pausing. This episode comes out uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, we recognize that not everybody celebrates as somebody who just finished lighting the Hanukkah candles for eight days. But clearly it's a cultural tradition and point where the country kind of both shuts down, but also pauses in this period of the holidays to be able to reflect and, and take stock and appreciate. And so we want to spend some time today doing that, looking back on what's happened this year a little bit and really gearing up and, and resting up for the big fights that are going to come in 2021. But just spend a little bit of time today wrapping the year and looking forward to what can we take from it? Because obviously it's been a challenging, unprecedented, historical, challenge-laden year. But I think we have some perspective on it now. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. So joining me to wrap up the year 2020 is my co-host, Charlene Chang. Can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, it's definitely getting a little easier, although I'm still reserving the right to uh, be skeptical about what next year has to bring for us. I think yeah. I've learned a little bit to not make any assumptions anymore about what I think any year might look like <laughs> because we learned a big lesson this year and that Expect the unexpected, right? For sure. Um, by the way, I'm still processing that you quoted Barry Manilow. <laughs> like when you were like that great singer I grew up with, I pictured, let's say, a lot of different singers. And when you said Barry Manilow, I did not see that coming. I was and going I to say that I was going to spare, <laughs> I was going to spare our our listeners my rendition of the song. Thank so. you, thank you. And I um yeah, just have not heard that man's name in a long time. And you know, I mean, truth, yeah, I listened to him as a kid too. But he was on the radio, and you couldn't avoid him. But okay, I was just thinking to myself how I can't believe this is our last episode that we're going to record for 2020. And while part of me should be like, woohoo, you know. It's finally over. I felt a little emotional about the mm. fact that, you know, I'm I'm still so just proud of us and our listeners and just it's just been such a journey to be doing this podcast with you and that we've done our first full calendar year during this particularly challenging year of our podcast is I'm just feeling all sorts of feels. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I share that as well. You know, just it's always surprising and, and heartening. Like different, I got a I got a, a holiday card from my friend, my running buddy's GAU, moved up to Seattle. She's all like, I listened to your podcast, and I was all like, Oh, really? You know, it's just kind of like it's very heartening to know that we're able to connect with people um, in this way. So we really do appreciate that. Definitely. So for today, what we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to kind of do something similar to what we did last year towards the end of the year. And last year we had highlighted the top moments of 2019 that brought us hope. And that was our sort of end of the year episode. And so we thought we would do something basically similar to that today. We just want to make that kind of reflection a tradition if we can on our show. And I thought it might be particularly meaningful given what a rough year this year was, 2020, to remind ourselves that if we really think about it, there were silver linings. There were just stories and things that took place that are good to remind us about that it wasn't all, all bad. I mean, a lot of it was bad and very painful, but there were on many levels, people doing amazing things or things, developments that had happened that were very 
positive for us to, you know, take stock of and not forget. But before we dive into that, Steve, I thought about in terms of talking about traditions, I wanted to check in with you. When you were growing up, was there any kind of tradition that you'd like to share with us? Well, I don't know if this, the, the Barry Manilow reference was a clue <laughs> to how long ago the childhood was. And so this, this remembrance, I guess, is in the same vein of terms of different time period. But you, you are, I said, once I met this guy once and we were just getting to know each other and he's asked me how old I was, whatever. And he says, oh, we're of the same vintage. So, uh, but Charlie, <laughs> you and I are of the same vintage. So <laughs> you may remember that, I don't know if it was Sears, but there used to be these catalogs that- I know. I know what you're yes. talking about. I think it was Sears. JC Penney's ha- might have had one. Yes, too. and they had these thick oh, catalogs. I know where you're going with this. And so, in the back, they would have uh, towards the back, they'd have these toys. And so, we would get those catalogs. My brothers and I, and we would go through the catalogs, look at the back of the toys to see what we wanted to make our Christmas list of what we wanted to get from Santa. And I don't think it was my mom and my dad. But I'm pretty sure we actually gave a list, but it came from what was in those catalogs. And so long before there's anything thought the of internet. the internet, <laughs> yes, that was kind yeah. of how that was an important part of our, is, our pre-Christmas ritual. You know, what's fascinating is I did something similar to circling. I did it throughout the year, but yeah, definitely probably around Christmas. But I remember me and my friends when the catalog came in any time mm-hmm. of the year, we would just start circling and talking about it. This is what I want. And um, I've talked to other people probably of our vintage, Steve. And this is a thing across like race and somewhat class, I guess, you know, because I I would also realize like there's no way I was getting Mm. probably 99% of it I was not going to get. But it was the fantasy of like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm going to circle like 100 things in this catalog. Yeah. Yeah, for us, um, the winter, the sort of the winter season holiday, the thing I remember that was special is my parents would make hot pot. And uh, I'm an only child. So some Christmas seasons, it would just be the three of us. Uh, Many of them we would do with family, friends or some relatives. But sometimes we would just be the three of us. Uh, But regardless, whether it was with others or ourselves, we would have a Chinese hot pot. Have you ever had that before? I don't. Well, I don't ever say I haven't done something, um, but it's certainly not <laughs> something that is. Uh, I the the I grew up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and I still mark a, as a major cultural developmental benchmark when I actually learned how to use chopsticks. So I did not. Yeah, that's uh, a big deal for. Yeah. Boy when I came to college, I went to Mexican restaurants and ordered grilled cheese sandwiches. So my my cultural expansion was slow and uh so i don't think hot pots were early on in my experience all right <laughs> i'll tell you what it is so it is um it's it's basically a, an electric pot or the old-fashioned kind had fire under it but it's either electric or has flames under it and it's like a plate a device like a device and then you put a pot over it and then you bring a broth to boil and then you have a huge table of raw ingredients like sliced meats and uh, seafood and um, lots of veggies and lots of noodles and then everybody has their own basket and you um you cook you know what my mom used to call it she's like she would tell her non-chinese friends or people who didn't know what it was that it's like a fondue it's fondue ish but it's broth and then you have a bowl with different kinds of sauces you can make your own sauce and there are restaurants that you can do this. Exactly. Right? So, yeah, in Japanese, it's called shabu shabu. So, sometimes they're called shabu shabu mm-hmm. restaurants. And it's super fun. And I highly encourage people to try it if you can. 
Yeah, no, I've actually been to some uh, restaurants and far more recently than my than my Barry Manilow days. But yeah, it is a very communal. You know, it does connect you in a deeper way with the people that you're with. Actually, yeah, and it's it's fun. It's definitely the communal. So that's that's what we did. It was nice to have a chance to go down memory lane. Mm-hmm. Especially after such a like 2020 started to feel like so long. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you today again is about the silver linings of 2020. And again, even though a lot of us feel like collectively, this might have been one of the worst years in memory, you know, for individuals, it could really differ. But there were bright spots. And that's what we wanted to talk about today. Yeah, no, I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday that our producer, Olivia Parker putting on to call your girlfriends and they were talking about reflecting on the year and some of them one of the hosts was just saying you know actually a number of good things actually did happen you know so I do think that there's that important that personal perspective and then you know I'm working on um, my next book looking Woo-hoo! at well the who will come when it's done <laughs> not in the, the, the laborious you know slogging through but just looking at the basic premise being right that the Confederates, the South never stopped fighting the Civil War up to this day, where the President of the United States is still trying to preserve the names of these racist monuments. And so it's just, it is eye-opening and sobering to look back over this country's history and then to put this year in that context, right? So it's kind of people keep saying, oh, it's the worst thing ever. And like, well, actually, it's not the worst thing ever. If you think yeah, about yeah, a, a debate over whether or not we should be held true. in slavery or not. It's all still relative for sure. And, and even within this country, people experienced it in different ways due to, you know, whatever privileges they had and resources they had. So one of the things I wanted to first talk about in terms of one of the bright spots is the vaccine. So mm-hmm. the vaccine, amazingly, before even the last day of this year, it's already being distributed. I personally even know some friends who are medical, like doctors and essential workers in the medical field who are, have gotten it. And I think that's, it's just amazing. Yeah. And so what else, you know, do we want to talk about in terms of this particular topic, the, the pandemic, and in terms of what are some areas of light, like bright spot stories that we can talk about, considering how much darkness in general, the pandemic did bring to us as a, as a country? Yeah, well, I think the vaccine in, in particular and the responses, there have been parts of it that have been very, very encouraging, right? And so I was, I was actually reading, well, listening to, I listened to articles when I run on the on the weekend. And so there were two very interesting articles on the vaccine that I listened to. One was in New York Magazine and the other was in The Atlantic, Ed, Ed Young's piece, um, How Science Beat the Virus and What It Lost in the Process. And so, well, first, just about, it's, they've never developed the vaccine in fewer than like five years before. That's right. And so we've developed this vaccine within one year. So that just is like incredible at that really? level. And less than one year. Technically. Right. And so one of the things that I don't think I fully appreciated that these articles were highlighting was that for one, the level of international cooperation, both among countries and then among scientists across the world, uh, what's all very important within this, right? And that, you know, there's a lot of criticism and beating up on China. And some of it's probably deserved, much of it's probably not as well. It's hard to discern it all. But one thing which definitely happened is China made the genome of the virus publicly available in January. And so what that made possible is for other scientists to then start developing a vaccine because they had the genetic code of what the virus actually was. And so that's something that, you know, is actually, I think, hopeful and encouraging. And then I didn't know to listen, uh, so I was listening to these articles that 
in Britain, they were able to do larger clinical trials around different types of treatments, and they were able to do them because they have a national healthcare system there. And so they had more people who could be participate, and they were able to actually move that whole piece forward. So I just found that actually kind of from a big picture sense, kind of heartening that we were able as a world to work together to combat this global pandemic, despite all the crazy things that happened within it. And then as well, there were different, you know, superstars emerging in terms of the, obviously the negative of all the, you know, racial discrepancies in terms of who gets it, who's most susceptible and African-Americans and Latinos being most impacted. But on the plus side, there's a woman, um, Kazmika Corbett, a PhD, a black woman, as among the National Institutes of Health Scientists who was working directly to develop and produce the Moderna vaccine, when it's 94% effective, I believe. So those, I think, were some positive pieces. And then another very interesting thing that the Ed Young article was raising, not thought about before, was he's distinguishing our kind of obsession with medicines and technology over people and society. And he's talking about there's the whole thing about social medicine, social epidemiology, and so we did throw all this money and all these resources at trying to develop the, the medicine, the vaccine. But he was like, well, where were the studies of schools and what it would take to make it safe to be able to send our children back to school and looking at the social impact of that? So as a society, that was an interesting question that needs to be put back forward. So I think that a lot of these types of more fundamental questions have also been brought up that I think we can grapple with um, moving forward. So I think that those are some of those things. And then just on a lighter but not note, we did see that it is possible to actually be able to address this if we follow the science and our discipline and that in the world of sports, right? I mean, I think I, I personally did find that, you know, sports and entertainment was an important part of, you know, even your own mental and emotional health, being able to like disconnect and get away from the day-to-day -day stuff. And so the National Basketball Association followed all of the science, spent a number of months looking deeply at what is actually possible. How does this virus work? How do you avoid it? What steps do you have to take? What are the protocols? Put everybody in a bubble in Disney World and restarted and ran the rest of the season without anybody getting COVID. And so, in addition, uh, Cleveland native son LeBron James won the national title for the mm -hmm. uh, Lakers. So I took yeah. some pleasure in that. <laughs> But it showed that you can do this if you're smart. And we've seen in other countries, right? And, you know, Korea, New Zealand, et cetera. But they, we showed even here that if you follow the protocols, if you listen to the science, that we can actually do this. And so I think that was kind of a win-win of demonstrating and modeling what's possible and being able to provide a service and a product that can, you know, give some enjoyment to people. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I'm not necessarily a sports person, but I was following that as a just a fascinating story. Well, your story. husband was trash-talking me when the Warriors were <laughs> beating LeBron and the Cavaliers a few years ago. I don't recall tr trash talking, but he did like to kind of say, yeah, tell Steve this, see what his reaction is, try to get a rise out of you. But, um, you know, I was following it from a sort of a news perspective in terms of what they were doing. And I did find it fascinating. And I will also say that I appreciate like what sports brings to people. I think it became even clearer this year, like for my husband, same thing, like for me, maybe going out for a walk by myself was my really nice time to do some self-care for him. It was getting a chance to watch a basketball game. And I think he appreciated it even more, even though it wasn't a big year for the Warriors. And as he said, he was like, well, I guess some of their key players were injured. He was like, okay, you know, good timing for that. But uh, he was overall just really enjoying 
being able to watch some games and unwind and a little bit of his own like me time during this many long months of the three of us living in very close quarters. Yeah. Okay. So with that, let's take it into politics. And this year felt like one long season of some sort of bad reality TV show. At the end of which he was fired. (laughs) Yes. Thank goodness. Just a long TV show that was a four years in running, but with a great, quite epic conclusion. And from your perspective, what do you feel like were some of the major highlights this year, this big election year, year in politics? So I think one is that it's not getting enough attention what it, it happened in, in 2018 and coming 2019, but manifests itself in 2020 is the Democrats taking back the House and Nancy Pelosi becoming the Speaker of the House. And so there's been, I think, two particular aspects of that playing itself out this year. And one was the impeachment of Trump. I mean, his personality is so outsized and insane and crazy that I think it's, you can easily lose track of what's most fundamental and important. And, you know, the dangerous side is that clearly there's a huge sector of this country which subscribes to this view and is influenced by this, you know, white racial anxiety that undergirds his political power. But he personally, and some people get, was never really about trying to amass power. You know, he's really just trying to get more. He's, he's like a, a megalomaniac and he's an ego, egoist and a, a narcissist. So he's just about his own personal aggrandizement. And he wound up opening up the doors to all of these different, you know, white supremacists and nationalists and uh, right wingers. But he has never, he's never very disciplined. And frankly, he's not all that smart. And so it took him a while to figure out how to cause as much damage and destruction as possible. And so as long as we were able to forestall that, makes the rebuilding process more possible and there's less things we have to rebuild. And so that was the significance of impeachment is that being able to bring impeachment froze him, froze his, you know, co-conspirators over in the Senate for a number of months from continuing to lay wreckage to our country and our institutions and our democracy. And that, I mean, somebody, Jamal Bowie at the New York Times has said Nancy should have dragged out impeachment like through the summer. But the fact that we did it even the way that we did it. And the people were saying, oh, why did she send over the article? She held on to them, draw the time out. So for instance, the, his attempt to undermine this on the census, he's going to run out of time. And so there are a number of things that they're going to run out of time on that is a result of us having moved forward impeachment. And so I think that's the thing that's probably going to get lost to history in terms of why that was um, significant in terms of what we're actually dealing with here as well as in terms of the judgment of history. I mean, he will go down as the only third president ever to be impeached. And as I'm just learning <laughs> doing my book, uh, Andrew Johnson was impeached because he wanted to hand the South back to the slaveholders. And so they impeached him over that. And so there's a certain symmetry to Trump being impeached 100 plus years later. Yeah, definitely. And it is good to be reminded of that. I still can't believe the, that history, that event happened this year. It seems like um, it happened in a parallel universe. And as much as I remember now thinking back how much I was hoping he would be impeached and removed, I'm glad that, that you're helping to remind us that there was still a lot of benefits from the process in that. Right. Oh, the other thing too, I'm sorry, I wanted to, yeah. to say in terms of Nancy being in the speakership is that, you know, this whole slow motion coup they've been attempting has continued to unfold until, you know, finally Mitch McConnell and the Senate was like, oh, well, maybe we won't try to have a coup. <laughs> but 
I've had to re, like reread the 1870 Electoral Act, right? And so they're going to try to challenge the county electoral votes on, on January 6th. And I believe the Democrats did not have control of the House. They might actually advance that and try to do it. So what happens is they challenge the counting, then it goes to each of the houses, the House, and it goes to the Senate. And then each of those bodies considers, do you throw out these different votes or whatnot? I think Mitch McConnell absolutely would do that. And if they were in control of the House representative, they absolutely would do it. So they may actually have been able to steal this election, but because Democrats have the House, because Nancy is Speaker, they're not going to be able to do that. And that's something that um, I think is going to be lost to history, but is super, super important, obviously. Uh, that that's just wild and terrifying to think about. Yep. So yeah, we we just can't really underestimate the importance of what happened in November. And again, because of the pandemic news and COVID, and you know the vaccine news. Now, I think it's uh, interesting how much people have basically just moved ahead. <laughs> it's like, oh great, we don't have to just think about and hear about Trump all the time, but let's you know just focus on what's happening next around the pandemic. But there's really just so much that uh, we just need to keep in mind and including a lot of it, you know, it's just highlights good stories about uh, to remind ourselves about what did come out of this election season. For example, the record numbers of people who came out to vote and that it just truly symbolized and was a sign of of how much our democracy, how much of it does work. It doesn't work perfectly, for sure, but that. We did see people on both sides come out in droves during a year in pandemic, and there was the mail-in voting success, and there was just a lot of firsts, right, that we got to see. And I personally try to remember that and not take that for granted because it's, it was historic. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, you know, for all of the concern, rightful concern about how large the vote was for Trump and how many, after all of the things that um, he has done, all of the, just, just the pandemic disinterest allowing hundreds of thousands of people to die, still he got all these different votes. It's very concerning. But we can't lose sight of the fact that more people voted against and more people voted to throw him out. And so there is a new American majority of people. And that is fundamentally, and some of my friends have highlighted this point about, you know, there's been a rise of like authoritarianism around the world and the country that is, is the most racially diverse that's grappling with this is the United States, which actually makes us the most possible to combat it. And I do think that this election really affirmed that in a, in a very big way. So one of the places where we definitely got to see the power of that new American majority, the demographic revolution and is another huge highlight huge highlight from this year is election night which then turned into election week in georgia in the in the state of georgia right i mean and technically because of the the runoffs are coming up january 5th it is um become you know one big election cycle but really just exciting to think about what happened in georgia and what is happening what's going to happen and it's been interesting for me, you know, I've been kind of trying to focus attention on Georgia for many years now. Um, and then even earlier this year, we right, trying to get Marston Keller, did a appeal for Reverend Warnock back in like March when he first got into the race, you know, and people didn't know who he was. And so it's it's rewarding to see so much of the tension of the of the country coming to appreciate Georgia and its significance. But I think even writ larger, there's a real... Uh, if we step back, historical, almost poetic justice to what's happening in this moment, right? I mean, Martin Luther King came of age in Georgia, 
as the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and now the control of the United States Senate and the really the prospect for advancing a you know full wide range of progressive agenda rest upon the successor of from Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend Warnock's Senate campaign. So there's just a whole symmetry there, and I just feel like that. And then, you know, I think we had noted an earlier episode that, you know, we lost many of the legends of the civil rights movement this year, right? John Lewis, uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian was a close ally of Dr. King, Reverend Joseph Lowry, the founder of SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They all passed this year. And yet we are in this situation where the state they came from and where they did their work, Georgia, is really the center of the fight against fascism and white supremacy and building a multiracial democracy and the kind of multiracial democracy to which they devoted their lives. And we were able to successfully win that state, which helped to forestall Trump's attempt to subvert the election. And now the entire control of the United States Senate, much of the, the whole progressive agenda rests upon what happens in Georgia. And I just feel that in many ways is a some level of fulfillment of their life's work and of the work of the civil rights movement, people who have been toiling for all these years, as well as a sign of hope around if we continue to invest in, embrace, walk that road about just what's possible within this country. Yeah, I remember. Uh, And one of the highlights now that I'm thinking about it of my year this year was staying up super late, (laughs) waiting for Georgia to flip. And the moment that it flipped and just seeing online, just the outpouring of excitement, joy, relief, and just the feeling of hope. And, and in a year like this year, there was just such just such an amazing feeling. And I hope someone does a documentary. I think there's, you know, a story there. Somebody do a documentary about Georgia and put yeah. it in the context of this year. Yeah, yeah. And then in the context of, of its historical place within the country. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. it, again, doing this research around the book, the the voter suppression and disenfranchisement goes back to the 1870s, 1880s in Georgia, right? And so this fight has been going on, but then the progress we're making, we see what it offers up in terms of really being able to transform things. So Steve, I know like whenever the two of us get going, you know, there's no shortage of stuff for us to talk about. And now that we're on a roll, I feel like there's no shortage as it turns out of really positive stories to lift up from this year. But I do sense that, you know, it is, it's getting that time. We should probably start to wrap up. So I just want to ask you maybe if there's a one last thing that you want to lift up from this year. Yeah, one of the things which was a quite uh, pleasant surprise was the developments in the space of media and the, really the elevation of different important journalists of color who are ascending to greater positions um, of influence and responsibility. People who are cognizant of their the, the legacy that they inherit and the context of the work they're doing in a country that is still grappling with racism and, and inequality. And so just, I think, a few people I wanted to mention in that regard. Well, actually, one is journalist Michelle Lee at the uh, Washington Post, who is going to be a bureau chief in Japan, I believe it is, actually. Um, so she, we got to know her covering politics here in this country. And so she's going to go have the significant role over in, uh, I think responsibility is going to be broader within Asia overall. So it's going to be a significant leadership position. And so, and I just think that the, 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 the larger point being, there's a responsibility, I think, that comes with having these platforms 
and the importance of trying to influence and help to educate the public around what's really going on and the lack of awareness and appreciation for the continuity and the ever-present reality of dealing with racism and racial inequality and systemic racism is not something that everybody understands. And so people who have platforms, using them to educate the public is really critical, but then who gets those platforms is what's really been an ongoing struggle and not always been a positive story. So a number of things have happened in that regard this year, right? So Michelle got, you know, is going to have her promotion. Tiffany Cross of the Cross Connection and Jonathan Capehart, columnist from the Washington Post, have now gotten weekend shows. And that's just super important in terms of the public opinion conversations. So what happens on these weekend shows, which are historically been hosted by, you know, uh, uh, white hosts who bring on white guests to discuss a narrow range of issues relating to white people, giving folks like this, and both of them are quite conscious of their historical roots and the struggles that have opened the doors for them to have these platforms. And they're very determined to use their platforms to bring a different set of voice. Like Tiffany Cross brought a whole bunch of Asian Americans onto her show for the the last weekend and opening up the media access to the full spectrum of the rainbow. It's just like super important. So I think that's been exciting. And then it's not an accident. I think that they got those positions because MSNBC's new president, which is Rashida Jones, an African-American woman who happens to have the same name as the actress Rashida Jones, Quincy Jones's daughter. And so the actress, I think, tweeted out something, you know, humorous about like, oh, my namesake has this position. And then another person was sending is uh, April Ryan at the Grio. And then the Grio overall, right? And that the Grio has really gotten an infusion of resources, investor resources around trying to be, become an even uh, larger, more significant platform within the, within the media. And that's all going to be super important heading into this new era is that once we pause and take our breath from having ousted the, the white supremacist in the White House, we're still going to have to grapple with this racial reckoning, all the inequality in the country, and where do we go? And so it's going to be very, very important we have voices that are focused on that. And the fact that they have put in place on these very meaningful platforms and perches, these very conscious and committed and talented people of color is, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge positive development that I'm just very excited about. Yeah, and somebody who was a journalist in a former life and knowing both how hard it is for journalists of color and, and still to you know, rise up and achieve positions of power, but how necessary that is for real change to have. I've been definitely really good to see all those people get into their positions and many more to come. And then they'll be able to lift up younger journalists. And that's where the shift really starts to happen. Because, um, yeah, percentage-wise, still, the vast majority of media, entertainment, news media, the vast majority are still white journalists at every level, including leadership. And really, there's the leadership needs to be uh, you know, reflecting the new American majority. And to see that that's starting to happen is just absolutely great. And all those individuals who we've worked with, many of them, we're just so grateful that they're out there. And they have the, the lens, the cultural competency, they personally experience, they know what white supremacy looks and feels like. And so they've got you know double vested interest in fighting for justice and, and equity through through the work they do. Yeah. So I think last year we did, did we do like a New Year's resolution or something like that? Do you have like 
one thing you want to quickly share that you were looking forward to resolving to do in 2021? I, I think after I like, I earned my wings from 2020, man. And as a, as a, I feel like I don't, I didn't get like a big pass for doing nothing in 2021. <laughs> That's your resolution? Take a breath and rest in 2021? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I really don't have any except probably just more self-care and think that that everybody should just be extending themselves a lot of compassion, taking care of themselves in big and small ways, however they can. And I think for myself, yeah, I just would love to see if we're, if it's possible next year to see people that I didn't get to see this year and make that effort, you know, whether it requires an extra expense, you know, flying to more places, but I, um, there's definitely a lot of people I would love to see next year. And so I'm going to make that a priority if I can. Yeah. I just, I recently resolved that I am in fact going to, I mean, I've been trying to keep my training fitness going at some baseline level, but I'm, I was like, you know what, I'm definitely going to run a marathon in 2021. So that's my putting that out there officially get back on that wagon. All right. Let's call this year a wrap. <laughs> it's a wrap. So, thank you. In the you. words of Barry Manilow. <laughs> Looks like we made it. All I can do is trying to break into song. But maybe people can Google the, the Google that uh, American tradition. So, thank all of you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. And um, also, as we referenced, the Georgia runoff election for the Senate seats and the future of humanity is at stake. I mean, it's hugely important. Um, and so if you'd like to join us in supporting uh, Fair Fight and the network of organizations that uh, we're working with and the campaigns of Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff, we'll have a link listed in the show notes where you can contribute and you donate, your donation will be split between um, those three entities. So please help us get this word out about the podcast. As we were saying, we really you know, are very grateful for the audience and your listenership. Um, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, share with your friends, tweet at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. Find us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Vola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco until 2021. Have a happy new year. Looks like we made it. Keep the faith.